Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Good Good Golf Podcast, the show with no real purpose beyond wandering aimlessly around to the world of golf with people who are interested and interesting. It's not catchy, is it? But it's true. Is this a bit? You're trying out new material here? Kind of. Okay. No good? No, that's right. Push on. We need a slogan. Keep going. But it's got to be accurate. Uh, this week we're going for a rare double. Our third wheel will be a journo for the second consecutive week. I don't think we've done that too many times before. John Huggin last week, a bit closer to home today with Golf Digest. What's your, I'll ask Steve what his title is later. Golf Digest, question mark. Steve Kuypert. You can see I didn't reread the intro before I started the show. We'll bring Steve in in just a moment. Before that, Adrian Logue assumes his rightful place at the top of the introduction tree. Good to see you. Lots to chat about today, particularly in the professional arena. Thanks, Rod. Yeah, we're looking forward to having a chat with Steve as well. With Steve, yeah. We'll find out what Steve's title is shortly. Out of one major into another. Looking forward to dissecting all of it as we go today. Where can people find us, Logue? I'm at Adrian Logue on Twitter. You're at Rod underscore Mori on Twitter. And this show and many other fine golf podcasts can be found at TalkingGolf.com. Next week, can you sound a little less bored when you say all that? <laughs> Sorry, hold. I know you find it. I was trying hard. to say that with a with a smile on my face. All the podcasts. Can't you hear the podcasts. smile in my voice? All the podcasting podcasts say you should do it. Is that right? So like a sheep, we follow until they change their advice. Why should people listen to us? <laughs> you weren't expecting that, were you? Why should people listen Why to us? Why should people listen to us? Only those who are listening to us are going to know, so say something complimentary. About well, it's a, it's a pause in their otherwise horrible, dreary lives with time just going on eternally like a snake eating yeah. its tail. <laughs> As we march <laughs> relentlessly towards death. Yeah. Is that what the- That's- Fantastic. On that uplifting note, well, he's no John Huggin, which is not a criticism because, let's be frank, none of us are, but he does hail from the home of Australia's best publicly accessible golf. I refer, of course, to Steve Kuypert and to Tasmania. Steve, welcome. What's your role at Golf Digest? How the hell did you manage to move to Tasmania and keep your job here in Sydney? That's a neat trick. Yeah, thanks, guys. Good to be with you. And I, I've been called many things, but a piece of punctuation is not one of them. So <laughs> question mark, is, I can add that to my resume. These days, I'm known as the associate editor at Australian Golf Digest. Um, there really are only two of us on staff um, these days, editorially, myself and Brad Clifton. So um, in, in some ways, the titles don't mean a lot, but technically, that's what it is. And um, I, I found myself in Tasmania from the beginning of last year, um, partly because most of us, even pre-COVID, um, work remotely these days. Um, that was sort of a change that happened for us a couple of years ago. So a little bit ahead of the game in terms of what's happened this year. So um, I, I took the opportunity to, to relocate to, as you said, um, you know, pa- perhaps the best part of Australia. Yeah. Now, where are you? Are you near Barn Boogle? Uh, I'm in Launceston, so that puts me about an hour, hour and a quarter's drive away. I see where this is going. Just one. (laughs) (laughs) You do see where this is going, don't you? But we've already done that off air, so I won't bother mentioning again that you haven't been to Barnburg yet, I think is the uh, safe term. Just on a a tangent and a side note, how's the remote working thing worked out for you? Because I think a lot of people have been thrown into that. Uh, not by choice in the last sort of six to eight months. Ours is an industry where that's kind of always been possible. I've been doing it for years and years and years, but I've not been on staff anywhere. Has it worked all right for you? Yeah, I think it has. I mean, it's it's meant different things for different people. Um, I've always been a fan of it. It does take some discipline, um, but my attitude is your, your workload doesn't change. You, you might be able to kind of massage the, the hours you're doing a little bit or, or more the point when you're doing them, you know, it, but it's, it's quite possible to throw on a load of washing, empty the dishwasher and do all those kinds of things in the middle of the day. And I was commuting an hour in each direction living in Sydney. And so suddenly I've got two hours a day back, which is, which is just fantastic. I, I don't quite know what I do with them. I probably so. work, yeah. but uh, <laughs> it's just nice not to be st- staring at traffic for two hours a day. Washing in the dishwasher. You're not exactly selling it, Steve. Nobody's signing, <laughs> signing well, up I figure those that. things don't go away. <laughs> you know, they're always there. It's, uh, it's funny. I actually think people are more productive in the sense that if you're at the office from nine to five, no matter what, and you've got something that needs to be done by the end of the day and it's going to take you an hour and a half, well, you wait till 3.30, don't you? Because you're there anyway. If you're working from home and it just has to be done by the end of the day and you've got a tea time at four o'clock, well, you have it done by three, don't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that you can make your tea time. So I don't think people work less. I think they just work differently and more more efficiently and more productively. That's how I feel. The sort of work yeah. we do, that's not true necessarily for all industries, but for the sort of work we do, I think that's very much the truth. 
the other thing I'd chime in with, and I'm not sure what um, other listeners who work from home feel, but I felt it was a lot easier for us given that we all used to work in an office. I think it would be a really different kettle of fish if you started a position remotely, whereas we sort of already had the kind of office camaraderie already built up. And so having everybody on the end of a computer screen rather than across a desk from you um, didn't seem like that much of a jump. But I think it might be different if you were starting a new job that way. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. Interesting. that is, a, that is yeah. an issue. I went the other way. I was working from home for many years, and then I had to start working part time in the office there at North Sydney, which is where yep. I met Logue. So yep. I'm yet to think of anything good that came out of it. Uh, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, though, I really struggled with well, that. I couldn't that. go back to an office now. Not a chance. I, I've, I've done that where I've worked mostly remotely and then come into the office. And I find. When you, when you come into the office once every couple of weeks, everybody's so glad to see you. It's a little mini celebration. Like it's You don't get that at home. Yeah, no. <laughs> you don't ever get that at home. <laughs> That's no right. matter how long you stay away for. That's right. And you kind of have a fun day and then you go back and you can be away from all the people again. But None of that's got anything to do with golf, of course. Do you get up to play Barnboogle? I have to ask you because everybody listening wants to know. Do you get to play Barnboogle much, living an hour uh- away? It's probably been a little underutilized. Um, they've been very welcoming of me, which I've, I've, I'm very thankful for. But in 18 or 20 months that I've been down here, I think I've been there four times, wow. um, which is good. It's certainly better strike rate than I was used to, but maybe not as good as it should be. There's people in Melbourne who play at Barnboogle more often than you have. Mm. So get with it. Get with the program. There'll be golfers out there that are horrified. What is the golf scene in Tasmania like? Now, here's the thing. Barnboogle and now King Island aside – we never talk about it and we never hear about it. There must be golf in Tasmania that is well worth seeing that we just don't hear about. Yeah, very true. And, and I still haven't done much more than scratch the surface. Um, but there are some gems. Um, Alveston is one that comes up a lot, which is a l- little bit outside Devonport. Some people might know the, the Devonport uh, Country Club or Wood Rising, as it was known for a long time. Sort of 10, 15 minutes further out is Alveston, which is a gorgeous golf course just cut out of tall trees and perhaps is after the the Royal Hobarts and Tasmanias and, of course, the, the King Island courses and Barmboogle courses um, next on the list. Um, but the thing about Tasmania is there's so many nine-hole courses. Mm. There's a, a, an extremely high proportion of nine-hole courses, which uh, are fantastic. Um, there's one up at Greens Beach on the north coast, then you go to the other corner of the state, the um, Tasman Golf Club on the Tasman Peninsula, which is kind of Tasmania's answer to Naruma in a way. It's, it's sort of on the edge of a cliff and you feel like you are on the edge of the world because uh, you almost are, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, it's the, it's a huge proportion of nine-hole courses that um, uh, it, it probably sets Tasmania apart as well. Ratho Farm is another one, isn't it? Yes, of course. Yep, yeah. overlook that one. I mean, it's it, you just have to play there if you if you come to Tassie. It's, it's only – it's. Not that far out of Hobart. It's an easy drive and it's it's a real step back in time, particularly if you do it properly with uh, hickories mm. um, and slung over your shoulder. It's that very exciting development at Arm End as well mm-hmm. on the island. Clayton slash Goggin slash... Is that the one you're talking about? Oh, is Mike or Clayton involved with that? He might not no, be. No, There's that, another one that Crafter and Mogford, I think. Yeah, it's Crafter yeah, and Mogford. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're Mog- thinking of Seven Mogford Mile. Seven Mile Beach, yep. yeah. yeah. Oh, indeed. Um and is, I don't know what the situation is there in Tassie with COVID. Is Tasmania a potential chance to be a winner out of COVID in terms of golf travel, I'm thinking in particular, as a destination, given that lots and lots and lots of people will either be reluctant or not allowed to go overseas for quite some time, Steve? Yeah, it's um, it, it's been a great place to be in the sense that there were so few cases uh, here. And in many ways, Tasmania has felt like there's almost no virus for the past few months because it has been, uh, you know, the benefits of a small population, really. But um, I don't know it, it has <laughs> a good job. There was a fantastic um, newspaper headline back when this started, and it was a, a huge um, uh, picture of Tasmania. And the headline was, we've got a moat and we're not afraid to use it. Um, <laughs> and it's true. It's, it's the state that had the natural border, and it's uh, certainly exploited it. And I don't think anybody can fault it. Um, the only problem has been um, once if you have to leave the state, uh, which I've had to do several times. I'm actually currently quarantining. Um, I was in Sydney last week, and this is my fourth stint 
of quarantining for two weeks uh, without leaving the house. So that has been the downside. But take that out. Um, Tasmania has been an awesome place to be through all this. No wonder you're doing the washing and the dishwasher. There's nothing else to do. You can't, you're not allowed outside the house. So I would imagine that your other half has told you in no uncertain well, terms. I, I, mowed the, I mowed the lawn on Sunday and I actually mowed the nature strip and I wondered whether I was, was meant to be far <laughs> away. With it. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, it's it, – I, I don't know. I'd – fourth stint i'm a veteran at it now but i I don't want to have to do it again it must be her living in the like the european tour or the pga tour bubble Mm -hmm. we spoke with huggy about this last week i would imagine he's quite right six weeks of that would drive you a little bit mad okay how much money you make or all the rest of it if you're just in a gilded cage at some point humors i think we've all felt it whether you intended to go out or not having the option taken away from you is different to choosing not to go out and do what you would normally do. So beautiful place, Tasmania. You must get down there. Uh, like it really is, aside from the golf, Steve, isn't it? It's a fantastic place, Tasmania. I love it. And I've, I've been there a couple of times and done a bit of travelling around, not just to Bamboo, which I think is a mistake golfers make. Hmm. Well, as I was saying to you blokes earlier, I've been watching Rosehaven on ABC. It's a great little comedy series, Australian-made comedy, and it's very good viewing. I think I recommend all of our listeners watch Rosehaven. Terrific state. Terrific state. Now, let's move on. Logue, I'm going to give you the choice. Where do you want to start? You want to start with the US Open preview or the ANA review? Now, let's talk about the ANA. Okay. Yeah. You've got some things you clearly want to say <laughs> in that case. Well, it was a great tournament, first of all. Fantastic finish. Really good finish. The players performed fantastic. Um, but, you know, it was all overshadowed by this ridiculous uh, marquee that was behind the 18th green. Oh, that's a generous description. A marquee. <laughs> Very. Suggests some sort of inhabiting or hospitality or- well, Actually, what would you call it? It's just a- wall. A back, back wall. Giant backstop. Yeah. So Call it what it is. Or as know. Steve, I think you've you've latched onto the, the now popular term, the Great Wall of Diner. You're a fan of that? What was your take on yeah, that? Yeah, I've got to credit. I think it's Beth Ann Nichols who, who writes it for was. Golf Week, I believe, in the States, who coined that. and. It, it might sound like an obvious name, but, you know, even a two-foot putt has to be hold, doesn't it? You know, it, it was right there, um, perfect one to use, and, and you know, it, it was a backdrop in every sense, wasn't it? Was anybody surprised at how controversial it was? Uh, this was my – I was saying this to Logue earlier today. What surprises me is – well, there's two things. One, it's been there for about 10 years now, I think it is, since the grandstand was moved to the back of the green. To be fair, the grandstand is further back, though. It's actually – it extends out over the water and it sort of starts right. at the water's edge. Yeah. But it's still the same sort of effective notion. You can't hit it in the water past the grandstand. No. So you're talking semantics there. But it's the lack of golf IQ within a professional golf organisation, Steve, that staggers me. Why did not somebody at the LPGA look at that as every golfer did on Monday last week when the first pictures came out and say, this doesn't look right. We should do something about this. Yeah, it's... um. It's a good one, isn't it? And the argument, there are two arguments. One that you've touched on, that it's something of that kind of structure has always been there. So, hey, you know, it's no different to any other year. And the other one, of course, that came out yesterday was, well, it was the same for everybody. Everybody had the same opportunity to use it as a as a backstop. Um, and some players said, look, if that hadn't been there, nobody would have gone for that green in two. But I'm, I'm with you. It It didn't look right. And so... It did, that makes it not right in in my idea. I mean, in what planet of golf do you have a man-made structure brought in for one week to use as a backstop so balls don't go into water over the green? It just it aside from the water, anybody. pretty much every professional golf tournament. In reality, I think Norman more than once at Huntingdale during his six wins there oh. lined up the back grandstand at Huntingdale mm-hmm. and took two extra clubs so that he could go to the drop zone. That's not uncommon in that sense, but those structures serve a purpose. That's right. It's a false equivalence to compare these to grandstands because Mm. this is just not necessary. And Mm. it was a poor piece of advertising. Like many levels. Backfired and terribly, yeah. It it wasn't actually a very attractive presentation of the sponsor's logo. (laughs) Giant blue wall. Although that logo is appalling. I'm not going to get sidetracked (laughs) on that. But the ANA Inspiration logo, it takes a pretty good logo, the ANA logo at its core, and puts this horrendous swoosh around it with an aeroplane, just so you know that the swoosh comes from the aeroplane. It needs the logo treatment. It's just a terrible, terrible logo. but the, they've taken that logo and then presented it on that awful thing, but really tiny as well. And it just served no purpose from an advertising point of view. And it's really ING that are to blame for this because, 
they've they've thought to themselves. You can just imagine what they've thought. They've oh, thought, the committee meeting would have been very interesting, wouldn't it? In in order for <laughs> us to deliver the same value to our advertiser that we deliver every year, we're going to have to put this thing behind there, and it's just that's how it's going to go. Oh, that solves a problem. We're going to put that thing behind there, and we're going to deliver the same value that we've always delivered to our advertiser. And and it's like, well, why why do you put that there? Is it a load bearing marquee? <laughs> Like, what's the point? It's key. <laughs> I love it. it well, you, had, it. you had that situation yesterday, um, the final group playing the last hole, where Brooke Henderson's shot had gone into the wall, not not against it. It had kind of gone underneath, underneath and they were yeah. fishing around trying to find the ball. You had Catherine Kirk over on the right where her ball had actually finished up against the little cover to Poppy's Pond and she was trying to work out what she was doing and you had the final group with a major in the balance and nobody hitting a golf shot for about 10 minutes because they were trying to work out how to deal with these structures. Perfect storm of disasters, wasn't it, for for the thing. I suppose that the real victims, for want of a better term, in an incredibly first world way (laughs) in this situation, are kind of the players who put on a great show, they can only play the course that they're asked to play and they can only play it as it as it presents to them. The Brooke Henderson shot, I think, was an interesting one, Steve. I don't think she would ever have considered playing that shot had the wall not been there. We've heard other players say that they played a particular shot because of the wall, and hers is one that is undoubtedly critical in that circuit. She never would have played that shot. She had an iffy lie, didn't she? It was an iffy in, lie. In it was a fairway wood. The only outcome for that ball was going to be a knuckleball that came out low, carried the water, and took off like a bullet, which is what it did. And that's why it went underneath the, yeah. the, the wall. It, she was only 170 yards, yeah. though. So it, I, I'd have thought she could have fashioned a shot. Uh, who, who was it that said that? I don't know. She had to make birdie. Yep, yep. Had to make birdie, no question. And with the backstop there, your best chance of making birdie is from behind the green. She might not have taken five wood, but I think she still would have gone for the green. She would have gone for the green had it not been there, and we would have had a different – it would have been a different momentous decision. Yep. There was no real decision. You just smack it into that back wall, yep. take your drop, and see if you can get it up. But anyway, leaving all that aside, who knows whether the outcome would have been different, but certainly some of the machinations have ever been there. So I think the players are somewhat victims because they get forgotten in the controversy and what was a stunning finish, and Miriam Lee, what a what a, the Craig Perks-like finish from her mm. was extraordinary. And the other one is actually the sponsor whose mm-hmm. huge investment for the year in golf is now tarnished by this essentially poor decision from those in charge of setting up the tournaments. Now, I go back to this other thing. I'm constantly staggered by the people who are in the business of organising professional golf who either have, Steve, no interest or no actual knowledge of the game to guide them. And This is just such a prime example, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. And um, as you were saying before, the discussion in some of these meetings, pre-tournament meetings, uh, would have been fascinating. And and the sort of give and take and push and pull of some of these decisions being discussed would be incredible to listen to. But uh, you're right. I mean, maybe they just didn't care. Um, I I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like a strange thing to say, but I can imagine possibly given that it was more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit all week over there and there were other factors uh, to be taken care of in running this tournament. Maybe this just didn't register very high on the, you know, give a you-know-what meter. And that's that's the lack of golf IQ for me. As mm-hmm. I said, like, every golfer who saw that picture last Monday, the first picture, they, were there, they immediately had the same reaction. Like, what the hell is that doing there? Yeah. Yeah. That is going to affect play. Will it change for next year, do you think, Luke? Has there been enough outrage? Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, I very much doubt it. Apparently, well, I didn't realize Jane Crafter was having an exchange with Beth Daniel, maybe on Twitter, and they were saying that back in the day when they played the what was then the Dinosaur, there was a sponsor hoarding and grandstand, but it was on the other side of the water behind the green, so much further from the play. Yeah, I mean, you can float if they if all they needed was signage, you could float that out in the water. Yeah, well, that's not an uncommon thing. They could have done it. They could have done it digitally this year. Um, it, it's that lack of the need for a grandstand which has made this decision look so so poor. So all that aside, what did we think, Logue, of the finish and Miriam Lee? What a magnificently pure golf swing she has. Um, yeah, she's got a lovely golf swing. Um, I, I I'm surprised she hasn't won a bit more. It is, although, so she chips in on 16, yep. extraordinary chipping. Yep. Hits an awful shot. Chipped in, in on seven. the sixth as well, I think. Um, and the sixth, which was yeah. a pretty impressive one. Hits an awful shot off the 17th tee. 
doesn't doesn't play the 18th terrifically. It's a drive and smacks it over the back of the wall and then chips in. So I wonder whether there's something about pressure there. That's an interesting way to win a tournament, isn't it? I mean, the one f- sort of full shot that was really necessary to hit well, she missed, and that was at 17. She missed it in a bad spot in the bunker yep. to the left of the flags. She hit a superb drive down 18, I think, which is what the difference was in the end. That was what cost, uh, cost quarter. quarter the tournament. Norda, almost called a Norda. Norda, yeah. Mm. Yeah, you're really just inventing yeah. stuff now. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Uh, what a player she is, Steve Kipe at Nelly Quarter. We first saw her here in Australia a couple of years ago at the Australian Women's Open at uh, in Adelaide, not the one she won. We saw her, I think, the year before, maybe even two years before. And she has just gone ahead in leaps and bounds. Her performance at the Australian Open last year, I think, when she won it, was just staggering. Uh, she is a serious, serious player, is she not? Yeah, I actually, if, if anybody had, had asked, I, I would have had her my pre-tournament tip last week. Um, it just seemed like the the stars were aligning for her. And, and I get a sense of the, no disrespect to Jessica Corder, but I get a sense of Jordan. a bit of, um, <laughs> I, I've mixed names, Verena Williams, <laughs> Venus and Serena Williams about this, where, where Venus was the one who shot to stardom first, but the parents were saying, no, no, Serena's the the better of the two here. Oh, and I, I wonder family whether dinner, a, isn't there? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Your sister's better, love. Yeah, I mean, maybe they didn't sort of say it quite so directly as that, but um, I, I, I'm a reason, reasonably strong tennis fan, and I remember that back in the day that um, that people that knew the family said um, Serena was the better of the two, and I wonder whether this isn't the case here where, where Nelly maybe – you know, I, I'm not sure what the age difference between the two sisters is, but um, Nelly's taken a little longer to hit uh, her stride, but may end up having the superior career. But uh, I've been a big fan of hers. Yeah, I mean, as we all have, the the entire quarter family and their connection to Australia is something else, and um, and her um, her win at the Australian Open um, w- was something to behold. And I just think it's a, it's a name we we all remember and follow, and that's a golf swing that we'd all love as well. It's a lovely golf swing, it's a beautiful golf. That's swing. I. I, I of all the swings in professional golf, that's the one I like. You can have your Anne Van Dams and everything, but I think Nelly Corder's swing to me looks extremely um, stable. There's a pragmatist in you, isn't there? Yeah. You don't get distracted <laughs> by the pretty, do you? A pragmatist. Well, I think Nelly Corder's swing's pretty as well, but it's it just she's got. You can tell her club face is really stable through impact, and it's just it's a Beautiful. pro swing. Like Beautiful. it's just and she's yeah. really learning the craft. She will learn an awful lot. I was very surprised to see her hit the same shot off the tee in the playoff that she did. In regulation, that sort of hook mm. uh, over into the rough. I was really surprised to see that. Um, yeah. But she'll learn from that and she'll develop a shot, I'm sure, ready for that situation next. I personally, and Brooke Henderson is one of my favourite players. I just love the way she plays. You know, that huge John Daly-esque swing. There's almost nothing on her. She just whacks it out there and she gets on with it. And uh, I, I was impressed with her performance because she's been a little bit lacking in the last year or two. She hasn't been as prominent as we've seen her and... There was a very ugly double bogey that she made at the 13th. It was an awful double bogey. And to come back from that, yeah, she she lucked one in on 16, a putt that fell in on the left-hand side. But I actually thought once it went to a playoff, I thought she was the one. Yep. I thought it was hers. Me too, uh, yeah. Hers, hers to win. I thought she was the one with the momentum. She had the best credentials and that she's been in that pressure cooker more times than, than Miriam Lee and Nelly Corder. I thought she would get the job done. But, uh, yeah, fantastic. It's just a shame that it's all been overshadowed. By that whole wall thing. What do the LPGA The load-bearing marquee. The load-bearing marquee. What do the LPGA do? Like, it's a PR misstep. It's two of them. You could apologise for Mike Wan. I've already done that, apparently, according to you. Mm. Um, What do they do? That is two missteps in the space of three weeks that are really damaging. And it's a it really is a – that's a bad couple of weeks for the LPGA. Yeah. It's funny. A friend of ours – Justin Falconer made a comment to us <laughs> that uh, they play their a lot of their every week week in week out golf on great golf, golf courses, but then when it comes to at least two out of the five majors, um, they're played on some pretty awful golf courses. And I, I think that embracing of what's great about the women's game is you know is be- no better expression of it is when they're playing on a great golf course. and The arm uh, wrestle is just right, isn't it? It's yeah. a perfect tournament that you're looking for from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> exactly, to- that's right. And since they've returned to golf, we've seen some great events. And Troon was – this this tournament, in contrast with Troon, this was a more exciting tournament. We, we seem to somehow see that again and again where exciting tournaments happen on really drab courses. Um, but uh, the, the golf was so much more watchable at Troon. 
This I only found watchable because it was an exciting finish. A bit like basketball. It was mostly towards the end, I find. It becomes more that sort of golf. You watch all four days unfold at Trinity and you're intrigued the whole way. That's how it that's how it works for me. And then with this one, you kind of, right, back nine Sunday, let's tune in and see That's right. what's going to happen. Where do you so, stand on? Sorry. Uh, well, so if the LPGA doesn't lose their way and start to think in these corporate terms of being like a, you know, they're a product and they need to, you know, satisfy sponsors all the time. And it's that thinking which slowly chips away at the quality of the product. Is it a tougher balancing act than we give credit for, perhaps? Yeah, it's absolutely. It's tough. Yeah, you've got to continually remind yourself of what's great about golf and what's great about the, the way the women play golf in particular, and that's that's what the core value is. And uh, if, if they just lean into that, then the the success should follow. Whereas, you know, just chipping away at trying to make every little transaction that you have with every advertiser or every tournament set up and just trying to make every single one of those things a little win just chips away at the soul mm. of your product over time. And I think that's where the LPGA could lose their way, but they're not there yet. They're still a pretty good product. They're not the PGA Tour yet. <laughs> good Lord. <laughs> let's, not, uh, let's not make – where do you stand on this uh, compelling finish is fine to hell with the course, Steve, whereas those um, who obviously yeah, think differently? Yeah, the A and A gets away with it because of that final hole. In a way, I'm not saying it's a great hole, but it's a it's a 18th hole where a lot of things can happen, as we've seen during the years. Um, but it's it's not a fantastic golf course by any stretch. It sort of does the job. Um, and you're right, the the strength of field and and close finishes kind of get it over the line in some ways. But uh, I still have more of an issue with the fact that there are five majors um, in women's golf. Uh, I'd almost be looking to delist one. And Which one? this could be top of the list. Oh, I would personally. Well, it's, an Amer- it's on American soil. So, well, so okay. That- and, and here's the problem for the LPGA. The tournament has a magnificent history. And it would be wrong morally and in a business sense to just do away with that. Are they in a strong enough position to be able to switch golf courses? And the golf course was very much a part of the birth of the tournament. It was about promoting that golf course, and Dinah Shaw was all in, and I'm pretty sure she lived in that area. Can they get away with switching the tournament venue? It, like the Masters, has this. We see the same holes every year, et cetera, et cetera. Is the best long-term decision, painful though it may be in the short term, Steve, would the best long-term decision be to move to a different course? Or keep it where it is and make it the equivalent of the Players' Championship on the LPGA Tour, um, sort of the next best outside the majors. Go to the same venue, keep the history, uh, and, and you, you don't kind of ruin what you've created over multiple decades. But uh, I, I just I like the idea of the majors on the LPGA Tour being the US Open, the British Open, uh, the PGA, and Evian's got some work ahead of it, but uh, I just like the fact that there are two in Europe and uh, two in the States. I think that's a far better balance that we'd love to see in the men's game, but uh, I just don't see that need for a fifth major, and I know I'm probably not going to win this one, uh, particularly in LPGA circles, but uh, why not transform this tournament into the LPGA's equivalent of the players? Because uh, that, that's a gap that they sort of don't have. I know they've got other tournaments, but uh, there's no equivalent there. Yeah, demote this one and travel the Evian, travel it around. We're talking as though there's some official pecking order where you can shift the tournament. Yeah. Of course, there's not, which has been the problem for the Evian. You can't just announce in 2013 that it's a major and have everybody say, oh, okay then. Yeah. I mean, there's no – this is always the problem with the majors argument is what is a major? Well, we all accept what the four are, but it's not like there is some list of criteria that they tick the boxes on and therefore they're in, whereas other tournaments are out. This is why the – Players' Championship has this argument every year, isn't it, Steve? Is that who who deems it a major? The PGA Tour can call it a major, and they've got every right to call it a major as much as any other tournament have got a right to call themselves a major. And the thing is, if you if you were to anoint the players as a major, for example, then what becomes the next best? You know, there will always be a first reserve. Where it doesn't matter how many you've got on the on the top tier, and so you would get that argument. But uh, I just always I don't know. I, I love the. The number four in golf, it just seems to repeat itself um, so frequently. And four majors just seems to always fit. I, it's always grated with me that there are five. And, and, and perhaps it was the way it was done with the Evian, as you said, a, a tournament that just suddenly became a major overnight almost. And, and, you know, they've had huge problems with 
the course and the time of year that they play and weather and it, it's never really felt like a major I think other than to those who are in contention to win it perhaps um, it, and I don't know that that's the LPGA has done some great work under Mike Wan and I think everybody acknowledges that but uh, that's one area I'd love to see a little bit of tidying up take place yeah, they, were, they, they were Evian kind of was the players championship wasn't it, it was the mm. fifth most important tournament then they sort of made it a major have they diluted the other four by adding a fifth Logue no, I mean the P- the PGA's really risen in status over those years. Done a fabulous job, and on uh, the back of the courses that they've played, that's in, right, as much as anything. And the Women's US Open, I think, has uh, equal prize money with the men's now. Oh, I don't know about that. Does it? Oh, I don't think so. I, don't uh, might, got, I might retract. The USGA's that. got that much money. I think they did something significant with the prize money recently. No, it, they anyway, have. It's, it's still it's, the biggest purse in women's golf. As far it, that, that might be what I'm thinking. But so. That tournament has grown enormously in stature. In my in my view, the USJ leading by example there. I think it's has a very important role in their schedule, um, which tournaments like the ANA and and the Evian can't hope to match. Like there's just nothing special about them in that respect. Like the the Women's US Open is um, uh, you know has a major feel. So does the the PGA has has managed to. Achieve that in as well. just a few very short years, it has to be said. Yeah, that through has elevated excellent itself. selection of the venues yeah. that um, uh, you know it's it has a real major feel. I think that that year in particular, um, where Daniel Kang won, yeah. that that was I think the evolution of it from um, a regular tournament to being something that really felt major. That view of Kang coming down the 18th with the grandstands, like massive crowds watching her, and just all sorts of. Um, Everything was at stake with the way she played that hole, and she, and she, um, delivered um, on a career that at that time hadn't really delivered. Doesn't like the three wood. Hit that magnificent three wood at the yep. last one. I reckon she doesn't like the three wood. Can't yep. find one that she likes. Yeah, that was just that one would, of the great major moments. It really in the last was. five years. So, Absolutely. Good. Um, and ma- the making of that tournament, it's gone on uh, from strength to strength. And the Women's British Open, I think, uh, since its evolution or elevation to major status, uh, has really embraced that as well. And now. Um, Moving out of the, uh, moving on to some more links courses, I think has enhanced that tournament as well. So, um, but it, the special thing about it is that it can go back to Heathland courses and and play a variety of uh, courses in the UK, which Sunningdale's um, I think makes it really special. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I always felt Steve that the Women's British Open being brought into the the major rota made sense in so many ways, mostly because fans were staggered that it wasn't already. Yeah. It was a it was a wrong that needed to be righted for several years before. That's how it felt to me. Karen Lunn won the the Women's British Open in 1993, I'm going to say. It wasn't considered a major then. Kari Webb won it in 95 and 96, if I'm not mistaken. Not considered a major at the time. And then something about that didn't feel right, did it? It was just, is it because we, we have that in the men's and so we expect it? I'm not sure, but... It just felt right, didn't it? The Evian is a totally different thing. There was none of this consternation when the Women's British Open became a major because it replaced a major that fell off the schedule, the one they used to have in Canada. The, the gym, Was it Canada? Yeah, in the, the Jim Moria sponsored by the cigarette company. But it, it's tough to get this stuff right, isn't it, Steve? Yeah, but it sort of circles back to what we were saying before. It, it's about the golf courses, isn't it? If you go to great golf courses, you you fix a lot of things that might otherwise be less than perfect, and and maybe that is the lesson, as you say, for the A and um, I know it's got its history, but if, uh, if if it wants to kind of be seen in the same echelon as as the other majors, um, a, a change of venue uh, can't hurt. But we'll, we'll I know there's a lot of the, the a lot of tradition one. there. But yeah, I mean, exactly right. It it, it always staggered me that it took as long as it did for the for the women's open to go to st andrews um i think lorena ochoa won the first one and it was just everything everything seemed right with the world you had the the best golfer winning on the on the most storied venue we have at long last but it, it still scratched a lot of people's heads that why did it take till 2007 or whenever it was for, for that to happen but it's obviously as a tournament, as a championship, gone on in huge leaps and bounds since because of the venues it's gone to. And same with the women's PGA. It's it's just almost overnight become a far better tournament. Um, the women's US Opens um, 
granted, I guess they've got a little bit more flexibility um, with the venues they can go to because there's maybe not quite the same level of infrastructure. But that tournament in, in Charleston last year in South Carolina, that was a great golf course that they played at. And uh, it's just so compelling. The, the, the three main majors in women's golf are a must watch um, for, for any golf fan, I would think. And it's, it's the players as much as the, um, the venue. Um, for me, it's, um, they just go to so many great courses. Of course, the ANA's got this issue with clashing with the uh, Augusta National Women's Amateur, National Women's Amateur, which is one hundred percent Augusta's fault. It, yes, absolutely. Uh, I think you could square that circle by actually just moving the ANA have have Augusta National Augusta adopt National. that as their women's of professional course. event. Just and n- nobody, including I don't think most of the people involved with the ANA tournament, would say that's not a good idea. No, that perfectly squares that circle. It would be the right. You'd have to drop the sponsorship though. But- Augusta National wouldn't be associated with a, with a tournament that has a title sponsor. Probably not. But that it squares the circle perfectly, gives the ANA, which wouldn't have to be no longer called the ANA, a permanent home, which is on a you know great golf course, and it truly elevates it to major status. But then, of course, sorry, Steve, you'd have to ditch the Evian as the. Oh, oh, I, so I can live with that. And <laughs> I think to, to see Augusta played two weeks in a row by the best golfers in the world would would just be an absolute treat. I, I think it. And you know, I I certainly wouldn't view the the women's tournament as a warm up. I think they would be two tournaments held on equal footing. Um, just the the best female exponents in the game, then the best male exponents, and it'd be a fantastic fortnight of golf. And we get the joy of listening to whoever played their tournament second bitch and moan about the divots left over from the first week's play and how they were wronged, as we did at Pinehurst in 2014 when we heard all of that uh, that carry on for what was essentially a terrific tournament back there in 2014. Are we the only ones who care, Logue? Does any of this really matter when golf, if you accept the professional golf's entertainment and its main home is television and television audiences, does it really not matter about the courses? It only really matters that you have this compelling golf. It's what Adam Scott said about the Olympics. He chose not to play the Olympics, and somebody smugly said to him afterwards, well, it was a great tournament, wasn't it? And Scott said, well, what did you expect? They're the best players in the world. Of course the golf's going to be compelling. Yeah, and it goes to what I said last week. I think the players think of the ANA as a major. It's Mm. an incredibly important tournament to them. Yeah, that's right. It's I I don't know. You were trying to get me to rag on the tournament, but no, I'm, <laughs> the, I'm not. The uh, the the players want they regard it very highly. They feel a lot more nerves on the 72nd hole there than they do most other weeks on the LPGA tour. That's, that's right. That's the reality that's right. of it. Do I do I care what players think normally? No, but when it comes to actually what trophies they want on their shelves, mm-hmm. I, I don't really care about what players say about golf courses or the you know the venues. I think they get it wrong so often um but well they're just opinions anyway so there is no right and wrong it's just a disagreement oh, about I think personal they're, tastes they're pretty much wrong but the <laughs> <laughs> which is another way of saying you're pretty much right <laughs> but the and when it comes to what trophies do they want on their on their mantelpiece i think the ana is is right up there it's certainly ahead of evian you know, i think in most players estimations and up until recently it would have been ahead of the uh, pga but maybe just case now is it just a matter of time will everyone catch up will will a whole generation this is the other thing that happens generational change is always interesting i remember sue i've never been a fan of and still am not a fan of golf in the olympics i don't care about it i actually think it i think it's not good for the game to be in the olympics because the olympics has got such a tarnished history in so many ways and golf has its important tournaments. There are lots of people who think golf should be in the Olympics, and one of them is Sue O, who played in the Olympics in 2016, who told me many years ago she remembers the moment she heard the first time that golf had been accepted into the Olympics, and that became a goal for her Mm -hmm. because she was 11 years old. Wow. There's never been that for me or for you or for you, Steve. Golf's never been in the Olympics, so it was a new thing for us. But generationally, it's a much more important event for somebody like Sue O than it is for me. And so maybe does that what happens eventually with the Evian? There are kids growing up now who look at the Evian and just accept there are five majors, they don't have a problem with it, and that the Evian is one of them and it's just as important as the other four, Steve. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, a generational shift and perhaps in golf more so than many other things because we know that change happens slowly in our sport and, and it might actually take the full passage of a generation for, for that mindset to change. Um the Olympics in particular is a, is a funny one because the argument for it, of course, is that Olympic sports get the funding. 
um, golf in in our country and and most other countries is going to suddenly see an injection of uh, government funding if it's an Olympic sport. But um, again, a bit like the wall, does that make it right? Well, it's only into um, high performance golf. Not, they're not injecting not any yeah, funding oh, into me trying to improve no, my no. fourteen handicap. No, of course not. It's you know, there's no trickle down effect there. But uh, you know, it's I, I've I've followed the whole Olympic thing for a long time. I remember back in '96 or the lead up to the '96 Olympics when there the games were in Atlanta and and Augusta was first thrown out. Um, maybe the Billy Payne connection as well. Um, Augusta was first thrown out there as a potential Olympic venue in '96, and it didn't go very far. And then, of course, it all petered out for a few years and resurfaced to the point where obviously it came back in for Rio. But uh, I, I, you know, in what's that, 24, 25 years, um, I still haven't made up my mind on whether I think golf is a good thing uh, in the Olympics or not. It's I, I look at some of the other sports that are in the Olympics and you can definitely make a case. Um, but I also probably subscribe to the theory that the gold medal should be the pinnacle achievement in whatever sport um, is at the Olympics and that's certainly never going to be the case for golf. It doesn't fit and for golf, does it? I don't think it does. Too many people can win every week that it's just not. It's just not appropriate. I mean, the truth of the Olympics is they weren't interested in golf until Tiger Woods came along. And when Tiger Woods came along, suddenly Olympics felt, the Olympics felt like they didn't have the world's biggest athlete or biggest sports person as a part of their show. And if you, if you accept that the, you know, the gold medal has to be the most important thing, well, then you limit the Olympics to the sports that are already there <laughs> predominantly, and they don't want that. They need, they, the Olympics at its core is a commercial venture. For all the talk about human spirit and all the rest of it, the athletes treat it that way. But the reality is there's a massive organisation there which is simply a corporate vehicle to collect massive sums of money for an event that has enormous exposure. So it's not just as simple as, oh, you know, the gold medal should be the most important thing. I can't think of anybody in golf who would swap the gold medal for any of the major, in either men's or women's, for any of the major trophies, even if they had already, like Tiger, 15 of them. He's not giving back one green jacket for one guy. It's, it's just, and that will, ne- I can't see that it will ever be any different. And I think the same is probably true for tennis. I can't see any player giving back a Wimbledon title if they've got 10 of them to swap it for one gold medal. And that, that makes it, I mean, that, that kind of denigrates the Olympics in a way. I agree. It's also the other problem, and this might seem very odd to other sports, but it, there's no room for it in the schedule. The, the the schedule for golf is already like a clown car where there's you're just trying to fit too many things into too small a space, and uh, there's just there's really no room for it in the schedule, and it's especially now with the the trouble with traveling everywhere. Who knows what's going to happen next year with the Olympics? So it's uh, you know how do you how do you shoehorn that in there every year or every four years even? It just it's a major disruption. Like I, I think there's. Well, certainly there's a 72-hole stroke play event with the same players we see week in and week out. There's way too many 72-hole stroke, o- stroke, stroke events. And I like, I'm pro- I reckon we should go to a schedule where golf isn't necessarily finishing on a Sunday every week. And you could actually solve a lot of problems. It's a very radical plan. You're, first time you've heard, heard this, okay. I, don't, I doubt it. Three, three tournaments every two weeks. That's the schedule mm-hmm. golf should be on. And make them all three-day events. Make one of them a four-day event if you like, but mostly three-day events. You could even play 36 holes on the first day so that you get the the seeded groups still for the fourth round on the thing. But play 36 holes on the first day. Just get that golf that nobody's watching anyway. Get that out of the way quickly. Still have four rounds. You get over three weeks, you'd be playing golf on nine days instead of eight days, but you're getting three tournaments in instead of two. What do you reckon, Steve? I've solved solved all your problems there. Yeah, it's um, I sort of have to get my head, head around a little bit. I'm, I'm all for innovation. That happens I, on I every other sport. It. They play during the week. You you got NFL games on all almost every night of the week. It's just this continuous. I'm much less cycle. interesting. I, I immediately think, why doesn't the LPGA play Monday to Thursday? Absolutely, like that. That, that makes a whole lot of sense. I know the Corn Ferry Tour have experimented with that in the last couple of years, and the danger is you do it once and go, oh, I didn't work, and you stop doing it. That's if right. You, it's if this you danger stick of- with it. Finishing you, on Sunday every week. Everything just, finishing on just Sunday. Just nonsense. Well, yeah. You know, you've got to choose between which one you're watching. That, that, that is man. And the players have to choose about what tours they play on. And there's just not enough uh, weeks in the year to fit all of these tournaments. Now, in, it might just be because, we're, because I'm old. Sorry, I cut off Steve there. No, no, yeah, so did I. Sorry, and I've known it. But uh, 
54 holes as a golf tournament makes it seem less than a so make them play 36 holes on day one so I'd still have but a couple of these a couple of these events you don't need to make them four round events like this is why I think do we need three, 50 of them a year on the three PGA tournaments team? no but <laughs> so that that's the other thing you could have a much shorter season the NFL's like you know 16 games or something so just just have a much shorter season fit it all in you actually get the same amount of tournaments in three tournaments every two weeks two of the three can be three round events one of them can be a four round event but play the first two rounds on day one, so it's 36 holes in one day. It's only nine days of golf instead of eight. It's solved all your problems. Premier Golf League, Steve. Yeah, I I think if this year has taught us anything in sport, it's that sports can and will adapt if need be. Uh, Anybody who's been trying to follow the AFL in particular, making sense of which – uh, round a particular game belongs to and why are we playing on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday nights? Um, it's It's been difficult to follow. The NRL a little bit the same, but uh, I, I'm all for doing something different. Uh, there's no rule. I, I hate that we've done it this way all the time, and so that's why we do it. Um, it it's just not a good, good enough excuse, and I'd love to see more tournaments be played in the first half of the week. And Adrian's idea is a good one. I, I'd probably say the 36-hole day has to be the last day because you'd probably need to do it when the, the field is smaller after a cut. But um, it, it, there's no reason why it can't happen. And compressing the schedule a little bit, particularly if the locations were nearby, like you weren't traveling very far from event to event, the players might actually um, embrace the logistics of it if they if they play <laughs> Steve, two, come or, on. two or three weeks in a, uh, tournaments in a row rather than weeks in a row, and then got a couple of weeks off. Uh, who knows? Um, have the season but, be yeah, everything's worth a try. Everything yeah. should be on the table as a possibility. Have the season be seven months instead of twelve months, and then you can actually have an Australian tour then as well. Good luck with that. that. That's actually my long-term plan with all of this, is just to open up the schedule. And for so the counter-argument, which we'll hear, we often hear from, I don't know how to pronounce it, Rob OPZ, Rob Ops on Twitter. Do you know Rob? Very intelligent guy. Yeah. Knows his stuff clearly. And, and whenever this comes up, he just says flatly, it's not going to change, so learn to compete. Isn't that fair? The PGA Tour has enough financial and business support to run 50 tournaments a year and in fact, you could make the case, it would be remiss of them not to if that's the case. And their their existence is not for the good of golf. It's for the good of professional golfers who are members of their tour. Mm-hmm. And so it isn't going to change. We could hope all we want. You make a good point. You just mm, build, yeah, build all the joy that's, in that's the hard, argument. That's right. hard to yeah. defeat that point. Real buzzkill, uh, yeah. Rod. Thanks. <laughs> Dose of reality. So, sorry, guys. It is. I wish the PGA Tour were more altruistic too. And I actually think there's a business case to make for them doing that. But as long as they can have 50 tournaments all in America over the course of a year and have them supply enough money that the players are happy, they're not going to go outside. And we would do exactly the same here in Australia. You're selling past the clothes now. It's, so yeah. anyway, no different. Uh, let's move. <laughs> let's move on. Um, defend your magazine against the Michael Campbell underwhelming victory story, Steve. About, I think you said on Twitter it's about two years old. I think I remember seeing it the first time it came around, but my goodness, two smacks that the Golf Digest have copped in the last couple of years for that piece, wasn't there? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll defend the magazine quite easily by saying it's not us. <laughs> it's, it's the the American edition, and, yeah, I, I, I jumped on, semi in their defense yesterday of uh, jumping on saying this article is actually two years old, but, of course, that doesn't excuse, <laughs> it doesn't excuse it, no. the content. I, I was just a little surprised that they were getting the blowtorch applied, um, but then I realized it had obviously been pushed out through their social media channels again, which had kind of thrown more fuel on the flames, but... Uh, you're never going to win too many fans by criticising winners of tournaments. I don't care what sport it is or, or how they won. It's it's just not a smart or easy thing to do. And, you know, it's it smacks of a little um, insular um, approach in, in the sense that Michael Campbell had a fantastic career. At his best, oh, he was he was amazing. I mean, he went on multiple tears in his career where he was unbeatable for six months and then disappeared and then found his way back. It was one of the most mercurial careers I think we've seen in golf. And uh, and the US Open he won was one of the one of the fantastic championships of the past twenty years. It was you know he stared down Tiger, admittedly from another group, but. You know, not too many people have been able to relegate Tiger to second in majors, and Michael Campbell did it. Um, it just 
from an American rider who specializes in equipment, it should be said. He was sort of dabbling a little bit outside his forte with this. But then again, he's a golf rider, full stop. It, it almost shouldn't come with a caveat. But uh, it just, yeah, it, it wasn't a smart thing to do. You were always going to get more heat than you were praise, and I'm not quite sure what the motivation two years ago when he wrote it was. Well, we're talking about Golf Digest, so there's uh, one ticking it. So isn't there something to be said for free speech, though, Logue? Yeah, absolutely entitled to publish. And there are people in the world who would agree with them that Michael Campbell was an underwhelming winner, and they're free to say so. So you don't – this call for, you know, this shouldn't be published and all the rest of it. You cannot like it. But people are entitled to say what they want, and then you're free to speak against it. That was kind of my take on it. And yeah. you're playing into their hands. There's a clickbait element to it, which is not just golf dives. I think we're all guilty of it. I try and do it every week with this podcast on Twitter. Throw up some clickbait to get people to listen. Uh, and that's that's sort of fine as it is. I, don't, I wonder whether I wonder whether the writer really believed that Camp, Campbell's win was underwhelming. Certainly Michael Campbell's had some fun with it. Yeah. Various pictures of the US Open trophy with tears coming down his face. <laughs> that was brilliant. And whatnot wasn't it? in the yeah. last few days. But I'm not one that says they shouldn't have published it. I mean, people should publish whatever they want, really. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not all that bad. I mean, it's just grading on a curve. There's yeah, it's there's a lot bigger problems in the world mm. than this article. Yeah, <laughs> but I was a bit surprised. I have been a bit surprised by the blowback. Twitter yeah. is is Twitter getting nastier in our little golf bubble? Lots of people reckon it is, or are we just been there long enough now that we that we're seeing more of it? I don't know. I think it is. No, I agree. There's some um, there's some nastiness on Twitter. It's no surprise, really, is it? But yeah, that's and of course this all wraps up into that whole that tour thing from a couple of months ago with Azinger, which have which they've said again since, and and on US TV coverage, not uncommon for them to dismiss European tour wins of players who might be in contention. Well, he's never won on tour. Well, actually, he's won eight times in Europe, which does count. For something, so there's a little bit of tension in all that as well. I think. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Now I, I was seeing some otherwise very peaceful souls on Twitter recently going a little bit nuts, and uh, yeah, it's a little bit depressing. Everyone's a bit on on edge. Get off it for a bit, people. Yeah. Every now just and then, take a rest. I, I've been busy doing other stuff, not deliberately, and I've not been much on Twitter the last couple of months. And I'm- me too. I hardly put anything out there recently. But I, if you can, if you only put positive stuff out there, you mostly only get positive stuff back. Yeah. That's my yeah. experience. Indeed. I had to ask you about that, Steve, because otherwise people would accuse me of bias because I work for the other magazine here. Oh, of course. So. You know, we, we all have a, a fairly, um, you know, harmonious relationship. Um, you know, I, I, I believe I'm the only person to have actually worked on staff at both magazines and so i come at it from a slightly different perspective but uh we're all in the same game we're all in the same industry and um we obviously have a relationship with the um with the american edition and have done for for decades Uh, but yeah there are times when we we can distance ourselves from them and there are times where we want to stand beside (laughs) them i think this is definitely the former indeed let's move on and let's quickly uh, have a chat about the US Open. We touched on this last week, Logan. I wasn't feeling the love. We've rolled around a US Open week, and here I am. I'm quite immersed in it. It, it has it's arrived later than it normally would, but uh, it's got that whole major feel. We're seeing all the pictures and footage of the balls in the rough and the mm-hmm. the annual US Open. How are you feeling as we head into winged foot? There's a. I'll ask you about that, Charlie. But just ge- your general thoughts on this upcoming US Open. Are you excited and enthused? Uh, yeah, I think we'll get a good tournament. Uh, I'm not terribly excited by the image that it portrays for golf this is just something that it's really getting to me lately is just the fact that you know they're out there fertilizing the rough and growing it and now they're going to have the joy of having the rough extend all the way across the golf course because there's no crowds trampling it down so it's going to be perhaps one of the most severe setups I think we've ever seen for a major. I think it'll be a bit of a bloodbath. On a actually. golf course that is that tends to produce US Opens with it over, I think only one of the six or so that have been played there has finished under par. That's right. And I, as I understand it, this time of year as well, the the grass is you know going to be it looks much better growing conditions. It so it's going to be super lush. And I, I just don't think that's a great look for golf. And you got the bunkers in the rough. I don't I don't know why. Uh, American setups just continue to distort uh, what looks like otherwise, you know, a fantastic strategic test mm-hmm. by putting the bunkers in the rough. 
uh, let's face it, the bunkers are the little havens of safety um, for the players. Uh, if they hit it offline, they're, they're happy for it to be in a bunker. Better than the grass that it's going to land in it this week, certainly. Yeah. yeah. So, but bunkers are still hazards, and I think if you if you did have the more width to play with, then they would enter into the strategy. No one's aiming at bunkers when there's width to aim at. Um, so, you know, that's just it's a missed opportunity again and again. But it, part of this is just delivering what the players want again, um, and the players Ooh, feel like once a, once a year the U.S. Open should be a test of. Hitting, hitting it straight. That's interesting. I, I would have thought the other. I, I find most years the players are nothing but critical of the. Uh, in fact, they take shots at the U.S. Open during the year, as they did a couple of weeks ago at the. A lot of it, though, is that they want it to return to this sort of a setup, oh, I see where what you're saying, right. it's like narrow test and yeah. you know, uncovering the Ben Hogan of the generation. Um, so, I, I don't know. I, I think the players will be very happy with it. Um, depends how firm the greens are. I guess they might complain about that a little bit. Will we J- see Justin a- Thomas is a pretty good barometer of uh, player opinion, I find. <laughs> Just follow his Twitter and you'll... you wasn't happy with the wall at the ANA. No. I was actually a bit surprised by his tweet there. It felt like that was- the cost nearly, nearly caught at the yeah, time. Yeah, PR, uh, PR disaster. Will we see the return this week, Steve, of a US Open tradition that I feel like we've been missing for a while? Somebody soon is going to raise the spectre of an injured wrist, aren't they? And the possible legal implications for the USGA, if that is to happen, that rough looks brutal this week. Yeah, you're right. It seems like it's been a few years since we've we've had that, you know, with the Pinehursts, the Chambers Bays, Erin Hills, that we haven't gone to that that wrist breaking rough uh, for a long time. Um, I'm I'm going to be really curious to see what the course setup is like, um, partly because of the change of year from June to September, whether, whether that'll have any difference. But also, it was winged foot in 2006 where Mike Davis introduced us to the graduated rough Mm -hmm. the concept that the rough was worse the further away you went from the fairway rather than the stuff being just off the fairway being the worst and it was a setup that probably agreed with the golf course at winged foot 14 years ago and obviously was an approach that he held on to um, really throughout his tenure setting up the golf courses now he doesn't do that so much so i'll be curious as as a return to where this all began as to um, whether that is actually going to be the case this time and how it plays. Um, but, you know, it is winged foot. It's one of the U.S. Open courses. You kind of look at that Oakmont Pebble Beach as like the the top tier of U.S. Open courses. So a combination of seeing how the, the this um, generation of players, because um, there wouldn't be much overlap from the 2006 field, I wouldn't think, in terms of players, but how they handle this course and how the course is set up. Oh, sorry, I thought you'd – sorry, I was completely distracted. <laughs> Just around there, of course, Wingfoot, the side of that great US Jacker. Was it PJ Boatwright? We're not trying to embarrass the best players in the mm-hmm. world. We'll simply identify, identify them, them, which was uh, – Sandy Tatum? Sandy Tatum, sorry. I'm thinking PJ Boatwright, Sandy uh, Sandy Tatum. What do we expect to happen? Then? It's a major. We have to give some sort of a tip. I have no idea. No, no, no. Really have any idea. I, 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 I mean, uh, John Rahm's the obvious pick, I think. Uh, DJ – you know, you, you look for good drivers, get. don't you? Don't yeah. know what you're going to get with DJ, but Ram seems to just have that all-round game. There's just no weaknesses, and uh, a big, tough course doesn't upset him. Uh, it seems big so. driving week. I think if McElroy drives it well, he'll be there. Um, you're going to have to drive it straight. And Dustin might be, DJ might be the best. That drive he had on 18 at Chambers Bay in the final round, I still think that one of the great underrated tee shots. <laughs> he drove that into an area about. 10 yards wide. True. 340-something yards the, and down the the second shot was in position to Yeah, it absolutely. Just it was just a... Three putts later. It's, it's exactly. It's yeah. a staggering, uh, staggering performance. So, Steve, quickly from you. Um, Xander Shoffley. If oh, I can only pick call. one player, uh, I just think he's got the game for difficult golf courses. And technically, he's coming off a win. Uh, as we know, he was the actual winner of the <laughs> Tour Championship 72 hole. He won the gross, yeah. Yep. Um, and... Yeah, I just feel like he's he's a major winner in waiting uh, just because all-round game and he just seems to handle the tough courses so well. Um, he's, ha- he's had a couple of close calls in majors in the last few years as well. Um, uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Mm, versatile too. He contended at an Open a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken, as well. So mm, got, I think the one uh, Molinari won. Yeah, he did it in I think he did it in a bunker somewhere on Sunday where he had to contort himself into three different mm. positions to try to get it out, and that was kind of the end of his run there. But he was right in it. And so I agree. As a player, I'd really do like mm-hmm. uh, Shoffley. He's got all the tools, as they say. Uh, it's been fantastic to catch up with you. I didn't oh, get who's it. your pick, Ron? Oh, I said DJ. 
Oh, did you? Sorry, okay. Or Rory. He did too. Yep. Or Ram. Or maybe Adam Scott. Yep. Yeah, Adam Scott could do all right. Been playing all right, actually, Adam. You, you, you feel like Adam realises, I call him Adam like we're mates, you feel you feel as though he realises, I think he might have even said it, he knows the window of opportunity is closing for him. So every time he tees it up, it's with an intensity that recognises that. That's what I think has been, you've seen that the last couple of years from Scott. When he plays, he's really there to play. Uh, and I think we'll probably see that again. This, uh, this coming week. So. The only thing that's a bit disappointing about this upcoming week is that there's no pond next to the green for them to dive into after they've won. So we won't get any extravagant celebration after the US yeah. Open win. So That's a shame, isn't it? It is a shame. Not to, I'm sure there's a pool somewhere near Winged Foot if they wanted to, uh, if they wanted to find something to jump in. Uh, that's it. I didn't get to use this earlier on, but thank you, Skype it. Ah, <laughs> it very clever. Skype like it. it. Should have got it in sooner, shouldn't I? Because you, of course coined the term broadcasting. Yep, I can claim that one. So yep. we are now square. So. Yep, yep. Kind of. I'd still give it to Steve. Well, you would, wouldn't you, you nasty little man? Yeah. Um, you can go and have a beer with him and talk about that when you eventually get down to Barn Burgle, yep. which would be great. Uh, been good to chat to you, mate. Keep enjoying Tassie, great part of the world, and if and when we ever get back down there. Uh, it's not, I didn't realise you'd moved down there until just last week, so there yeah, you go, like Tosie, often I, we talk. I still spend a fair bit of time in Sydney um, when there are no pandemics on. <laughs> Good luck <laughs> um, with that. But it's obviously been less so this year. Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, thanks for joining us today, mate. Been a real treat to have you aboard. My pleasure, anytime. And, Logue, been great to have you along. Thanks, Rod. Always a hoot to get you. Next year's episode 50. Yeah, so it's it's a, been doing this a year. Well, it's yeah, well, near enough. Yep. We've been doing it for a PGA Tour schedule. Right. So that's close to a year, it's, isn't it? It's endless. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are, bagging the PGA Tour. Maybe we should take a week off yep. to celebrate uh, the 50th episode. But yeah, episode 50 next week. I don't think we'll do anything special. We'll just turn up and talk. We'll think about it during the week. Uh, good to have your company and look forward to it again next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.